You're listening to the Knowledge Archives podcast. Welcome to the Knowledge Archives podcast. We're a group of students on a mission to learn from as many different disciplines of knowledge as possible. I'm your host, Madhav Malhotra, and today I'm glad to be joined by Dr. Mujan Matin, a postdoctoral researcher at the Department of Near and Middle Eastern Civilizations at the University of Toronto in Canada. Her work focuses on the history of ceramic making and how we can analyze this using scientific tools, especially in regards to the medieval Islamic world. I'm very much looking forward to learning how her work connects archaeology and science in this way. Thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate you taking the time. And again, I'm very excited to actually start learning about this rather unique part of blending science and history. But to start off, I'd love to actually hear a little bit about yourself and how it is that you started working in this discipline to begin with. Thank you for having me, Madhav. So I am an archaeological scientist, uh, and I'm interested in the history of technology and history of art. So I suppose my research interest really lies in understanding the technological processes by which art and archaeological objects were produced. I started studying materials and mining engineering during my undergrad. And then I realized what is, I'm actually most interested in is the history of engineering. And so then I switched to archaeological science. And as a researcher, I spend most of my time in laboratories, uh, looking at archaeological objects and using a wide range of instruments to study them for their chemistry or structure, to address questions regarding their production, technology, and use. Mm-hmm. And to get started here, the first thing that immediately fascinated me about your work here is almost thinking about how the technology has been in this evolution. It's not just about one period of time, it's about how one period led into the next and the next. So, to start off, it would be great to maybe focus on ceramic materials and Think about where in the Islamic world they actually started to be produced and the societal context around their production and uses. Thank you for the question. So I suppose I try to work on a wide range of materials, so pigments, glass and metals, but mostly ceramics. And there's a reason for that, because ceramics are ubiquitous in archaeological context. They are durable and, you know, there's a wide range of evidence and there's a lot that we can learn from ceramics, especially about their production, but also about the cultural context, trade and migration of craftspeople across very wide regions. So when looking at Islamic period, I suppose we are really looking at some major revolutions in the development of technology and design of ceramics. Here, right from early on, from about 9th century, we have the interactions of the Chinese and the Islamic world, the Tang Dynasty in China, the Abbasid in the Islamic world, 
And these interactions really trigger uh, revolutions in the development of ceramics. So first of all, really before the Islamic period, there's not much glazed ceramics at all. And by glazed ceramics, I mean ceramics that are coated with a layer of glass. And so this is a very smooth, beautiful uh, layer of glass that you would see on, uh, on ceramics. And then suddenly, by the beginning of Islamic ceramics, you, you see glazed ceramics everywhere in archaeological context. In fact, the abundance of glazed ceramics is a diagnostic feature of early Islamic culture in archaeological records. So the question is, what does that mean? And I suppose, in a way, this is to do with the development of cities in this period and the money culture. And what is transformational about Islam is the social and economic structure that is reflected and pottery and ceramics is what shows it to us as, as archaeologists. And to dive deeper into that, what are some other milestone technologies like glazed ceramics that really show societal progression regarding the production of ceramics over time? I would say the, one of the earliest ones was the development of what we call tin glazed ceramics. Tin glazed ceramics were glazes that were colored white and were made opaque by the application of tin oxide crystals. This was a very complicated technology, it was quite an important invention at this time. But I suppose the goal for it was to imitate the imported Chinese porcelain that was coming to the Islamic world. So the Muslim potters really wanted to imitate the whiteness and smoothness of Chinese porcelain. But of course, the Muslims did not have the geological deposits for the kinds of clays that were used in Chinese porcelain. So they came up with this very important and complicated technology of using tin oxide crystals to make tin opaque white glazes. This technology started, we think, about eight or nine centuries, somewhere in Egypt or Syria. Then it moved all the way to Iraq. And from there, it went all the way eastwards to Iran and Central Asia. And later, around 13th century, we see that um, it spread to southern Spain and Italy with, when, when Islam spread to that region. In fact, this technology became the dominant ceramic production technology in Europe all the way to the 17th century, uh, when we get to see porcelain, local porcelain production at that time. And also in the Islamic world, this technology, we see that as the dominant technology all the way to the 19th century. And so still tin oxide glazes are common, especially when you're talking about sort of workshop pottery but the reason they have become less common now is for economic reason and it's to do with the price of tin and you know potters traditional potters usually now try to use um, other metallic crystals such as zinc what interests me is that a lot of these developments are to do with interaction of the islamic world with china and you know the attempt to imitate chinese porcelain at different time periods really um, are quite important for what we study. Mm -hmm. And on this note of technology being spread across different cultures, I can imagine how you might use archaeological remnants, for example, 
finding pottery at different places around the globe to track where the technology actually spread. But how do you then link that archaeological evidence to the societal mechanisms behind how the technology was able to spread? So, you know, we know that, for instance, when we have earlier evidence of a certain technology in one region, then we assume, you know, it must have spread from that region to Europe. But then there are also other types of evidence we deal with. When we are lucky, there are evidence of kiln sites and workshops. And that is really firm evidence that there was a production taking place in that region. Uh, but most cases, there are not actually major kin sites when we're looking at Islamic archaeology, or if they are, they are unfortunately not published. So we also look at other sources of evidence, for instance, textual accounts. There are lots of texts in Persian or in Arabic that talk about production sites, where the ceramics were coming from at the time, and these can be really helpful in our understanding. And where do you go to find these types of evidence or even just the archaeological remains of the ceramics? So what I talked to you about was really an ideal case. One of the major problems in archaeology is that we don't actually have many major keen sites that are published. And so we, most of what we know about the provenance of objects and where they were produced is either from the inscriptions on pottery, so if, for instance, there's a mention of the city of the production on, on the inscriptions, then we would know that, you know, that particular piece is attributed to that city, and then, um, you know, that's the way we would know about workshops. Or if there are contemporary texts that we can compare with objects, then, you know, that sort of helps us with understanding archaeological evidence better. But... Most of the ceramic shards either come from archaeological context or unfortunately from illegal excavations that feed the art market. So these might end up either in museum collections or in you know, archaeological collections in different universities that different research groups work on. One other problem with archaeology of um, the Islamic world is that you know, here we're only dealing with fragments of ceramics, especially before 16th century. You know, the Muslims don't have the tradition of burying goods with the dead. And there are no troves of objects in perfect condition like you would see in ancient Egypt or in Greece or in China. So most of the ceramics that we deal with, they're found in occupational debris or rubbish tips or wells or foundations of buildings. Yeah, and I assume that's where the scientific part of your work comes in, where you have all of these different samples of unknown shards and you might use different techniques to identify what's what. So could you tell us about the processes involved in this kind of work? So there are different ways this works. Either we have a particular question and then we go and look for evidence for that, or there's a group of shirts that we have and we know very little about, and then we start using laboratory equipment to know how they were produced. For instance, one of the examples is what we call a group of luster ceramics. Now, luster refers to a 
a group of ceramics that have a very beautiful metallic iridescence. And they are particularly well-known because of their extremely complicated technology. So we think these are one of the earliest occurrences of nanotechnology in human civilization. So, you know, they probably started around 9th century in Iraq, and the craftspeople used nanoparticles of copper and silver in order to produce this effect. This was one of the really points in archaeology, I guess, that archaeological science was really helpful in our understanding. You know, researchers started using different instruments, usually x-ray, for instance, to understand the chemistry of the clay that was used to make ceramics. And then they tried to link that sort of clay to the geological deposits uh, that might have been available, for instance, in Iraq. Also, for, for looking at glaze, researchers needed to replicate, to reproduce these glazes, because just by knowing their chemical composition, we weren't able to understand how they were made. And um, this was where, fortunately, there was some text available that described the process of the production of these luster ceramics. And so together with the chemical data we had, we were able to reproduce them. And speaking of reproducing the production of past ceramics, is there utility in just observing modern ceramic making processes to infer about what past conditions might have been like in order to maybe compare and contrast the practices of the past and the present? Um, absolutely. I mean, there are some of them, as I mentioned, that re have really continued until today. So in that case, we are really lucky. <laughs> but also, you know, in terms of the ingredients and sources of raw materials, it's very useful to look at modern technology. But we also need to remember that many of these ingredients have changed, especially in the past 100 or 200 years. Actually, this is one of the biggest gaps in our knowledge is about the sources of raw materials and sources of ingredients. Um, we know very little about them and perhaps modern technology is not that helpful in that region. Could you expand on that? Why don't they understand the sources of these raw materials? Now we have the chemical data, so we can guess, for instance, that the glaze has a lot of tin oxide in it or lead. But in order to really know where that tin or lead came from, we need to look at the trace elements in order to be able to link them to that particular geological ore or geological deposit. And this is usually very complicated in a glaze composition because they use different ingredients together. And so these trace elements, you get a wide range of them and it's difficult to sort of link them to particular ingredients that we're dealing with. There are cases when, again, there are texts about important mines. And in that case, again, we are lucky. For instance, when we're talking about the famous blue and white Chinese porcelain, or actually any of the ceramics that were made in the Islamic world after about 13th or 12th century, the blue color is produced using cobalt. And the cobalt uh, we know came from a particular mine in central Iran. 
in a village called Kamsar in Koshan. And this is very well documented. It's one of the few cases that is very well documented because of the uh, sources both in Persian and in Chinese. So the issue is that there are only a few sites where you can correspond the historical evidence with the archaeological remains that you find. Exactly, yes. And reflecting on your earlier statements, I guess one issue that would build on top of this complication would be that even if you do have the two types of evidence, the scientific and the historical, it's hard to get across the cultural boundaries of the historical evidence in the first place. Maybe the historical evidence involves Persian texts and Mandarin texts and English texts. So how do you manage to collaborate and access these documents in all of these different places? That's quite a bit of challenge, but it's quite exciting at the same time. So we try to focus on one area and then Hopefully, there are other researchers who are working on, you know, contemporary areas of uh, research, and then we can compare. The Cobalt project that I mentioned earlier was an example of that. So, you know, we really had to work with Chinese texts, Persian texts, Arabic texts, and there were accounts of this particular mine by European uh, travelers. So we really needed to compare all that in order to have enough evidence, not just about the mine, but also about the ways they process these ores. So, you know, in in the mining site itself, the ore was prepared and then um, sort of exported to China. But the Chinese had also their own ways of preparing these pigments for their own ceramics. So, you know, it was it was quite an interesting, really fascinating project. Uh, looking at these different technologies, the ways they viewed these processes, um, you know, also issues with economy and the cost of these pigments. So yes, um, it's quite international, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And were there any document archives or centers of knowledge, institutions, etc., that helped you find the right records and the right people? We usually try to trace different scholars by what they publish. So, you know, it's their publications that we know, and then we try to connect if we are looking at one particular question. But it's also the museum collections that we make use of quite often in our research. And so one of the issues is how accessible the objects in museum collections or in archaeological sites are for archaeological scientific research. Yeah, and that is actually the theme that I wanted to finally wrap up with. The idea of archaeological science in general. And the first thing I'm curious about the general side of this discipline is where does the money come from in terms of which kinds of individuals or organizations would want to fund this research and why do they? decide to do that? I suppose it's just like any other um, type of research that requires work with instruments. So using instruments are expensive. But um, especially nowadays, many of the museums have laboratories that are very well equipped. 
there are um, universities that have departments that look particularly at archaeological science. I suppose the, one of the founding uh, institutions was the University of Oxford that uh, houses the research laboratory for archaeology and the history of art, but there are also others uh, across Europe and also the US. But when that's not possible, then, you know, we usually try to work with departments of chemistry or earth sciences at different universities. In terms of funding, I suppose it might be still a bit more limited than, you know, when you look at sciences. But uh, I wouldn't say it's a struggle. Well, I'm glad to hear that the funding isn't as much of an issue. But regarding what you said about how it's hard to access these archaeological remains, why is that the case? So we mainly either work with collections um, at museums or with assemblages that have come directly from archaeological context. One of the major problems have been the illegal excavations that have been going on, especially in the Middle East. Unfortunately, these feed the art markets and they end up, um, you know, in art market or in the museums. And they are particularly of a major problem because they rob objects of their essential context. And so, you know, we end up with uh, beautiful objects, very important, very complicated in terms of technology, but we know very little about where they've come from. You know, it's only based on the information that the dealer has given to the museums or, you know, the art market. It is difficult to know how reliable this information is. This is one of the areas that we really need to think about more. Yeah, I find that very cool to think about because it reminds me of what you were talking about earlier regarding how you can use the chemical signatures or the clay signatures to trace the geographic origins of pottery to somehow get around the problem. And I'm sure it's a constant work in progress. So the last question I actually had for you was regarding where some of the open questions are for future work. So, which technologies, regions, or cultures do we need more people working on? Oh, there are many, many questions that we need to more work on more. But I suppose things that I can think of now, for instance, early in the 13th century um, in the Middle East, we have the uh, major Mongol invasions going on. And this was quite disturbing time. And we think about the development of technologies at this time, you know, there must have been major interruptions. But to our surprise, we see that this follows a, quite a flourishing period in terms of technology, especially in ceramics. So, you know, we really have big questions about why and how did that happen? There hasn't been much research done on that front. There's, there's a lot of work done on, uh, you know, more abstract sciences and the transfer of abstract sciences like mathematics or astronomy. But we, when we talk about crafts, miners, potters, smiths, we know very little about that. Yeah, it is just fascinating to me to think about how there are all of these possibilities that still exist in this discipline, and especially because 
I'd never heard about archaeological science before today. It's just incredible how it blends the science, so the quantitative digging, with the possibilities of history. So, I really appreciate you diving us through all of this incredibly fascinating work, and I'm very excited to see what comes next in this field of knowledge.